0: the prayer requests it slipped my mind i did not write it down but i uh, remember our brother dane smith he'll be uh, he is preaching today down in a church in lexington a pastor friend of his who tested positive for covid so he'll be preaching this lord's day and i believe the plan is for him to preach there next lord's day as well so remember him in your prayers as he seeks to assist and help that congregation Zechariah chapter 3 for our Bible reading, and we'll read the entire chapter together. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing with his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuked thee, is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thy iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head, and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, And thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts. And I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee. For they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua And one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall ye call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. Amen. We're in our Bible reading there at the end of chapter 3. And let's seek the Lord in prayer together before we come to... Consider this fourth vision of Zechariah. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you this morning for your word that you have given to us. We come to a passage that at least a large portion of it is very, very familiar to this congregation. We rejoice in what it is to be justified by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone. But we ask that as we consider this passage today, you would help us to understand what you have for us. Teach us your truth by your Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. By now, in our studies through the book of Zechariah, it really should become quite clear to us all that Zechariah was a prophet of hope in a time of Israel's great chaos. We've seen that this remnant that returned back to Jerusalem—they really were not seeing things going according to plan. When they initially got back to Jerusalem in that area, uh, there was an initial zeal to to get going with the work, but it was a zeal that very soon petered out. It didn't take them very long to get the foundation of the new temple laid, but by this point in Israel's history, when Zechariah is seeing this vision, uh, the work had really all but come to a complete halt. Nothing was happening, and the people were discouraged. There were two people, two very important leaders that God raised up to help the people. There was Zerubbabel, he was from the kingly tribe of Judah. His main responsibility was to oversee the rebuilding of the temple. And then there was Joshua, the high priest from the tribe of Levi. And even these two men couldn't keep the people on track. We looked a couple of weeks ago at Haggai's prophecy when he was preaching to the people to get their priorities back in line. They were focusing so much of their attention on getting their own houses in order and, and straightening out their own affairs, and the Lord rebuked them for that because in the doing of that, they were neglecting the Lord's house. And Haggai the prophet told them from the Lord, my house comes first. You focus your attention on my house. And we even saw how the Lord uh, thwarted their efforts. He slowed down the growth of their crops. He prevented their cattle from breeding in the way that it normally would, as a means of punishing the people for their priorities being so out of line. And Haggai's message to the people from the Lord was, Consider your ways. Get your act together. Zechariah came along two months later preaching to the people to repent and to turn to the Lord. And we looked at that verse in Zechariah 1 and verse 3. Turn unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. And from what we understand from the rest of the book of Zechariah, the people did, at least to some degree, turn to the Lord. And what Zechariah's visions are doing is the Lord is showing us what the Lord turning to his people is going to look like. This is what it looks like when God turns to his people. And we saw in the first vision, the Lord's work of inspection. And based on that inspection, the Lord found a problem. He found that the nations of the world were at ease, they were at rest, they were apathetic, they were uh, lackadaisical concerning the things of God, and God said, I'm very sore displeased. And God knew, by this inspection, he, he shows the people that he knows and he understands everything that's happening to them. He cares about everything that's happening to them, and he's going to come and he's going to make a change. He's going to write all the wrongs that the people of God are facing. And then that next vision is of these horns, these horns of power that have scattered the people, that have wreaked havoc and destroyed the people. And the answer says, I'm going to send the carpenters, and they're going to come, and they're going to cut the horns off. And I'm going to take care of the enemy, and I'm going to take care of my people. And then last Day. We saw from that third vision that the Lord is going to rebuild Jerusalem. It's going to be something that the people could never have imagined before. It's going to be a city without walls. It's going to be so vast and it's going to be so big. This man with a measuring rod who comes quickly finds out his tape measure is too short to be able to To measure the expanse of what the kingdom of God is going to be. It's going to be grand and glorious beyond anybody's comprehension. And the Lord, instead of having physical walls, the Lord says, I'm going to be a wall of fire round about it. I'm going to be that means of protection that you need. And so this second and third vision is showing us what it's going to look like when God makes everything right again. And God is demonstrating to the people that he is systematically undoing their chaos. He, he is in the process of systematically undoing all of the problems that they're facing, and God is turning to his people in revival victory. That really is what's going on in these visions. I've not mentioned this all along the way, But Zechariah himself, as a prophet, was an object lesson to the people. In his name, his name means God remembers. By their circumstances, the people could have been led to believe that God had forgotten. But he sends a prophet unto them whose very name means God remembers. God had not forgotten his people. How could these promises come true? How could the enemies be thwarted? How could the kingdom of God advance? How could Jerusalem be rebuilt, but but by by tightly the kingdom of God be rebuilt and this grand and glorious thing come into existence? It would have been easy for the people to have heard all that Zechariah has said so far and look back on, on the history and the track record and come to this conclusion of a, yeah, right. Yeah, Right. We've, we've heard all that before. Yeah, right. How, how is this going to be? Well, this fourth vision is sent to give the people great hope amid their chaos. It's hope amid chaos. For those of you who were with us on Wednesday night for our Zoom meeting, uh, you'll know that I preached then from chapter 2 and verse number 13 about the waking up of the sleeping giant. Be silent, O all flesh, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. This fourth vision is the Lord rising up out of his holy habitation and putting his enemies to silence. What we have at the beginning of this vision is a courtroom scene. God is sitting as the judge in the courtroom, and on trial is Joshua, the high priest, standing there before the Lord. And he's guilty. Dead to rights, he's guilty. And I say chapter 2 and verse 13 is demonstrated here. Because when Joshua, the high priest, was standing there before the angel of the Lord, you see in verse number 2, that I'm sorry, in verse number 1, that Satan was standing at his right hand to resist him. And what did the Lord say to Satan in verse 2? The Lord rebuke thee. The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. This is the Lord who has awakened as one who is rising out of sleep, as one rising out of his holy habitation, and he is putting the great enemy to silence. Satan, shut your mouth. Satan was standing there satanizing. That's the word that is used there. It's it's really an alliterative play on words. Satan was satanizing. The accuser was accusing. And the Lord says, Satan, shut up. Stop talking. What you're saying doesn't matter because this is one that I have chosen. This is a brand that is plucked the burning. The great accuser's mouth here is shut. I think one thing we have to pay attention to as we consider this, just on a brief side note of application, is it teaches us that in reality we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Because Joshua and Zerubbabel's problem was from all these nations round about that were plaguing them. But the Lord identifies the real problem. The real problem is the onslaught of Satan. The real problem is not a wrestling against flesh and blood, but a wrestling against principalities and powers. And the Lord identifies the real source of opposition that they face, and the Lord says, I'm going to make this right. And so this fourth vision is one that gives hope to the people of God, even amid chaos. And the removal of Israel's iniquity, as we'll see, We'll see the promise of a purified worship, hope because of the promise of the Messianic Redeemer, and then hope because of a promise of peace. These things bring hope to the believer. So I want to speak to you this morning on the subject of hope amid chaos. Hope amid chaos. And we see in these first five verses that we have hope because of justification, hope amid chaos, and it's hope because of justification. This, this is one of the most clear illustrations in Scripture of what it is to be justified. We in this church, Pastor Kimbrough, myself, Sunday school teachers, we talk about justification all the time. I might be willing to bet that there's not a Sunday that happens in this room that the word justification is not used. It is a major theme of this pulpit because it is the central theme of the gospel. Justification, that act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. There's a sense in which I could preach on the doctrine of justification every week for the rest of the year and not exhaust what the Bible has to say about this great truth. But to be brief and to point out some very simple points here, three simple points uh, that, that come out of this illustration of justification and the hope that we as believers have because of justification, I want you to see first from verse number 1, that we are sinners before a holy God. That's where our understanding of the doctrine of justification has to begin. We are sinners standing before a holy God. You look at verse 1, he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and it says in verse number 3, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. Now, we read that, and we read that word filthy, and we all, to some degree, understand what it means to be filthy. If you are at our house at about 5:36 6 o'clock, you'll hear the loud roar of a GMC 3500 pull into the driveway, and Hudson will get out, and he is filthy. He has dirt all over him. His hands are filthy, he has dirt on his face. His clothes are filthy. But that's not what this is talking about. The word for filth that's used here is the word that is used in the Bible for human excrement. I want you to turn to a passage in Deuteronomy 23. This is an important connection for us to make. And I don't want us to lose the import of this. And I don't want to just read past this word filthy and just keep going. There's a sense of which the Holy Spirit could not describe to us anything more vile than what we have here. It's difficult to imagine dirtier stuff than this. But this is important. Look at Deuteronomy 23. Look at verse 12. It says, Thou shalt have a place also without the camp where thou shalt go forth abroad, and thou shalt have a paddle read the word shovel thou shalt have a shovel upon thy weapon and it shall be when thou wilt ease thyself abroad that thou shalt dig therewith and shalt turn back and cover that which cometh forth from thee now is this just a rule for sanitation yeah partly but look at the next verse look at verse number 14 how come you need to have a shovel how come you need to dig this hole how come you need to bury this that comes forth from you because the Lord thy God walketh in the midst of thy camp to deliver thee. That's why. That's why you have to do this. That's why you have to cover your filth. Because the Lord walks in the midst of the camp to deliver you. And to give up thine enemies before thee, therefore shall thy camp be holy, that he see no unclean thing in thee, and turn away from thee. Now this was a real command that the children of Israel in the civil legislation were to follow. When it was your time to go, you had to go. You go outside the camp, you dig a hole, you go, you cover it up. But the connection there in verse number 14 is so important. You see, what this was by object lesson, if, if you didn't cover that, by object lesson, by illustration, this was a picture of open sin in the camp. And the Lord says, I can't intermingle with sin. I'm walking among you, and I'm not going to walk among fifths. I'm not going to be involved with fifth. And so Joshua is standing before the Lord, covered in the very thing that God said would cause him to turn away from his people. He was standing covered, like completely covered in that very thing. And God is saying, I can't intermingle with sin. Do you know what one of our biggest problems is? I don't think one of us in this room really sees ourselves this way. We don't see ourselves that kind of sinner. We're good sinners. We're not covered in poo. We're not standing before the Lord covered in poo. We're way better than that, aren't we? You see, that's our problem. Our sinfulness causes us to reject the very idea that we're sinners. Our sinfulness causes us to justify ourselves and say that we're okay. But God says, no, you're not okay. It's really this bad. It couldn't be worse. But the illustration goes on to show us that God sovereignly removes our iniquities. Look at verse 4. And he, this is the angel of the Lord, answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments. Just take them away. Remove them. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thy iniquity to pass from thee. The Lord uses the word iniquity here rather than the, the more generic, the more common word sin. Sin means to miss the mark. Iniquity is that word that underscores the idea of crookedness, being just so completely off of God's path. We're just out of line with what God would have for us. We're contrary to God's will. And God says, I'm going to remove that. And so God commanded the filthy, excrement-covered garments to be taken away. And that's what happens in our justification. Our sin is taken away. They're all forgiven. They're cast as far as the east is from the west. They're cast into the deepest parts of the sea. And the Bible gives us these different, different imageries to, to show us and help us understand what it means for God to remove our iniquities, to take them away. But not to be crude, but to strongly make the point. In our justification, we're not standing before the Lord naked. We're not left that way. We're not left with garments removed naked before the Lord. Look at the rest of um, verse number four. Behold, I have caused thy iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. God clothes us with his perfect righteousness. In its legal sense, we stand before God as perfect and as righteous as Christ is righteous. Uh, Chris Anderson in that hymn has captured the phrase quite well his robes for mine my robes my excrement covered filth was taken away and now I have his his robes in place of mine if you're justified you stand before the Lord clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ this is the great hope that you have as a believer Hope because of justification. Because of this fact that it's a sovereign act of God is something that can never be undone. It can't be removed. Those perfect, spotless, righteous clothes that you have on now, they're permanent. They're clean. Regardless of everything that's going on around you or everything that's going on in you, if you're justified then there's hope. Now, if you've never been saved, if you've never had your sins removed, then I'm very sad to tell you there is no hope for you until your sin is removed. Those who live in in constant fear, turmoil, and chaos of life and have no rest in their soul, they live that way because of the guilt of their sins can. you can never get past that on your own. The only way that you can get past that is hope in Christ. To know that your sins have been forgiven. To know that you're right with God. To know that you're clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And so this hope amid chaos, he opens with this hope of justification. But he goes on. A second reason that we have hope amid chaos is because we have hope that God will preserve the purity of worship. God will preserve pure worship. The next part of this vision really explains to us the why. Why is it that the Lord is giving this vision? Why, why did the Lord show Zechariah, Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, Dressed this way and and cleansed and changed. Why Why is this vision recorded for us? Yes, it's recorded as an illustration of justification. Of course it is. But there's more to it than that. As the high priest, you see Joshua represented all the people before God. He stood in the place of this faithful remnant that had returned to Jerusalem. And the people needed to be cleansed. Cleansing had to happen because without that cleansing, there was no way for them to worship God correctly. They couldn't go into the temple and worship God if they were still in the filth of their sin. And in the broader context of Zechariah, and what he's talking about here, what good would a rebuilt temple be if there were no people cleansed to worship in that temple? And what good would a cleansed people be if God wasn't going to make good on his promise to build this temple? And so you see how these two things really go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. If there's going to be a temple, there need to be cleansed people to worship there. If there are cleansed people, then they need a place to worship. And God had promised to build this. He promised to provide this. And there's the hope in all their chaos that the Lord is going to preserve pure worship for his people. Look at verse 5. There's, there's this part of a vision at the end. Zechariah gets all excited. He sees this. He sees the garments gone. He sees the change of armor. And Zechariah is the one that speaks up. You remember I, I said last week, sometimes in these visions it's hard to know exactly who's talking to who and what's going on. But in verse 5, Zechariah is talking to let him put a mighty on his head. Well this isn't the crown of a king, this is the miter, uh, it's, a, it's a piece of cloth, it's a, a linen miter that was part of the priest's garments that he had to wear on the day of atonement. Leviticus chapter 16 explains all that to us. Joshua was clothed with, with the priestly garments, most of them, and Zacharias said, let's, let's get this done, let's go, and put a miter on his head. And so the angel of the Lord stands by in in approval of all this. Yeah, let's do it. Let's put a mitre. And and so he gets the mitre. Joshua's all dressed up, ready to go. Where's he going? Well, the Lord promised to build this temple. And here's Joshua ready to serve in it. God's going to establish pure worship. Look at verses 6 to 7. And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua. So now the angel of the Lord is, is talking to Joshua and he says in verse 7, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, here's a condition. If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. Verse 7 gives us more details about the work of, of the ministry. Now this is the work of the priest, understand that, and we're not in the Old Testament times, and we're not talking about the work of the priest so much, but if we translate this into what we need as as New Testament believers, this is the work of the ministry. This is the work of of the gospel minister. This is the work of of the elders in the local congregation ruling over God's house. Yet Joshua gives these conditions. You walk in my ways and you keep my charge. You do those two things, and the Lord is giving hope to his people that he's going to establish the purity of worship. The priest, or like I say, as it's applied for us in the New Testament, the pastor, the elders that God has set up over the church are to rule decently and to rule in order. And there's three things that are laid out there in verse 7. Judge my house. I shall keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among those that stand by. All these are, are evidences for us of, of God establishing the purity of worship among his people and, and giving them hope that what the Lord has promised to do, he's going to do. Judge my house. Look at that first part. The word there, judge, is really the way it's the idea of governing, governing the house. This is the function of the elders in a local congregation to govern the spiritual life and and the spiritual oversight of the congregation of God's people. We, We as elders, Pastor Kimbrough, Jim, myself, we are responsible for the spiritual welfare of your souls. Keep my courts. That's the next part. Calvin speaks of this in the sense of the ministers and the elders keeping up the spiritual functions of the church the ongoing spiritual functions of the church, the preaching of the word the administration of, of the sacraments the general performing of, of the necessary pastoral duties this is what the Lord is going to establish in Joshua but for us in the New Testament through, through, his, through his elders you see, without these things, there is no true church. Without the preaching of the word, without the administration of the sacraments, without that, that pastoral care, there is no true church. There's many today, uh, we've talked privately among ourselves a lot of times about different things, and I know we're on a live webcast, and, and this is a valuable tool. And the Lord can use this and, and prosper it. And, and we as a congregation pray he does that the messages from this church go far and wide as they're recording, they're, they're put on and and out they go. But there are some who, especially over these past couple of years, have changed their whole, they, they've shifted their whole focus on church. And this concept of virtual church has become a thing. Well, virtual church is not Church. If if there's no administration of the sacraments, if if you never take the Lord's table, you're, you're, you're really not part of the church. That's an integral, necessary part of what it means to be part of a body of Christ. And here, Joshua is giving hope to his people because he says, I'm going to raise up the ministry of of pure worship. It's going to continue on. It's been gone for so long. I'm going to establish it. Great hope for the people. There's hope amid chaos. He also tells um, Joshua here in verse number 7, I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. I think really just the idea that we're supposed to gather from that is the concept of giving honor to whom honor is due. Those that the Lord has called and, and set apart for the gospel ministry, that, was, that the Lord has called as, as elders in his church are, are worthy of honor. And, and the Lord is saying to Joshua, in essence, I'm going to give you that honor among men that is due. The imagery, if you will, is of a man having a clear pathway to walk because people honoring him and in deference are move out of the way and give a clear path. That's the idea of what he's saying here. If this is the right worship of the church being established, and there's hope amid chaos because God will preserve pure worship, we ask ourselves a question here. What's the alternative? What hope is there in false worship? What hope is there in the status quo of what these people were facing in Jerusalem, where there was no temple? where for 70 years they had no place to, to worship the Lord as they were commanded to according to the Old Testament system. There's no hope in, in thinking that God is not meeting with you. But this is exactly what the Lord is saying. The Lord is saying, I'm going to meet with you. I'm going to turn to you. this is what it's going to look like. I'm going to wipe away all your sins. And I'm going to establish the purity of worship. It's going to come back. There's going to be a temple. There's going to be a priest. There's going to be cleansed people. And you're going to be able to worship me the way that I have commanded you to worship. Coming to the Lord's house, a consistency in in the Lord's house under the preaching of the word, the sacraments of the church, the fellowship of the Lord's people, that is a primary way that the Lord encourages and gives hope to the Christian. And the Lord in this vision says he's going to do that. We move on to verse 8 to a third aspect of hope here, and that is hope because of the work of Christ. Verse 8 Says, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee. For they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Here we see hope because of the work of Christ. Hope because of the work of Christ. Now, Zechariah was looking at this in the future. His that the branch, had not come on the scene yet. We look at this from the other side, we look at it backwards. And we, we see his servant, the branch, has already come. And his servant, the branch, has already done the work that Zachariah was looking forward to and was prophesying would happen. But this phrase, my servant, the branch, is, is one that's just full, packed of theological truth because it details two very important aspects of the mediatorial work of Christ. Isaiah is the main one who develops this idea of the servant of the Lord And the focus in that is primarily on the priestly work of Christ as our mediator. But this idea of the branch is one that focuses primarily on the kingly work of Christ, the kingly part of his mediatorial work. And in his servant, the branch, this priest and king are joined together. But this branch is something that's important for us to understand. You know, we, we talk about a branch, you live out of a tree, and you have a trunk, and off that trunk are branches. And, you know, that's where you hang your tire swing, is off the big main branch, and the, the branch. But that's not the word that's used here at all. It's a completely different word, it's really a really completely different understanding. Years ago, cut down a tree, chop it all up in the firewood, tree's gone, and you have the stump there, was a live tree, And several weeks later, you see growing out of the ground next to that tree a shoot. A a sprout has come up out of one of the roots next to that tree. That's the idea of this particular word. It's actually translated in the Old Testament as bud, or it's translated as something that that springs forth, something that shoots forth. And the imagery is, is very clear Israel as a nation had been cut down. Nebuchadnezzar had come into Jerusalem and just decimated the place. From a distance, one would have thought that well, these people are dead. But yet, the real prophesying of this one that was going to be the branch, this branch, is evidence that there's still life there. It's not dead still life is there. And the Lord is going to raise that servant up, his servant, the branch, combining the priestly and the kingly offices of Christ. And he's going to come forth as the one who is the great messianic redeemer of his people. Obviously a prophet too, but that's not necessarily in the purview of what Zechariah is talking about here. But verse 9 continues this work of the mediator. A different metaphor... But really, continuing on and, and perpetuating the same truth of thought. Verse 9 For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. I say it's the same image, but it's a different metaphor. It's still talking about the Messiah. It's still talking about the Redeemer would come. My servant the bench. But in verse 9 he's referred to as a stone. And we know from scripture many times Christ is referred to that way. He's a stone of stumbling. He's a rock of offense. He's the chief cornerstone. We'll see tonight he's the headstone. He's referred to as a stone many times in scripture. And So this is Christ, that one who is the stone. But we get a little confused and what in the world is all this with all these eyes and engravings? And what, what is Zechariah seeing or, or what is meant? What are we supposed to understand from this? Well, his servant, the branch, is Christ. The stone is Christ. And, and the seven eyes, there's several different interpretations here. Um, I, I think it's best to understand this from the perspective that all will see him and he will see all. There's another way to look at this from the perspective tying it with the engravings. That Christ, this, this is the way Matthew Henry takes it. Uh, a little bit different than, than Calvin's interpretation. But he speaks of this stone, this one ultimately that's engraved, but this stone that is so beautiful, it shines so brightly like a diamond. It, it's as if it has seven eyes of, of sparkle. And I think that communicates to us something of the idea, especially when we tie it with what the Lord says, I will engrave the gravings thereof. As a craftsman would take a stone that you would look at and you're like, what is that? But when he's finished with it, cutting it and smoothing it and polishing it and engraving it exactly the way that it's supposed to be to catch the most light and and do its thing what diamonds or rubies or And whatever he do, it's beautiful, stunning to look at when he's finished. You know, Christ is this. This is the same one who later would take to himself the form of a servant and would be made in the likeness of men, and he would be found in fashion as a man. And Isaiah tells us that he was comely. There was nothing about him that really drew people's attention. He, he walked through the marketplace, and he, he didn't turn heads. He was just a Jewish guy. But to those that believe, he's precious. And this is what the Lord is going to raise up, this Messiah, this Redeemer, that is beautiful, It's perfect, spotless. Sinless. We we can say from this last part of verse 9 that Christ was simply extraordinary in every way. It's extraordinary. There's hope amid chaos because of the perfect work of Christ for his people, because of the extraordinary work of Christ for his people. It's the same Christ that would earn a perfect righteousness that provided the garments of salvation that Joshua was clothed with. This is the Christ that earned these things. But I want to finish from verse number 10 and show you one final reason for hope. A final reason for hope amid chaos is that we have hope because of promised peace. Hope because of promised peace. It actually starts at the end of verse 9, where he says, I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. And then verse 10, in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall ye call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree? We have peace with God. There's hope because of a promised peace. We have peace with God. He says at the end of verse 9 that he's going to remove the iniquity of that land in one day specifically pointing to the cross and the idea of, of in one day the, the swiftness in which Christ by his death removed the sin of his people. you see for centuries there had been days of atonement. For centuries there had been thousands of animals slain. There had been millions of gallons of blood that was shed. But the sin of the people was still there. It was only object lessons, it was only pictures, it was only types, it was only shadows. But here's the reality. Here's the one that in one day, in, in one moment, is going to remove the sin of his people. Christ's final sacrifice for sin was going to be that last day of atonement. You see, Zechariah, I'm sorry, Joshua up in, in the, the top part of there in that chapter. Joshua was all dressed up, ready for the Day of Atonement. Dressed up, ready to go. He had all the clothes on for the Day of Atonement that he he was to have when he went into that most holy place. And so, in the New Testament, though, Paul links that hope of justification with this change of raiment, the clothing of the new garments, in the New Testament, Paul links that hope of justification with the hope of, of peace that we have with Christ. Romans 5:1, "Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing that is going to bring peace to your soul like knowing that your sins have been forgiven. Josh, or I'm sorry, Zachariah starts with that in the beginning of the vision. Hope amid chaos because of justification. Your sins are forgiven. And he comes, he he finishes the vision. It's not Zechariah's vision. The Lord gave Zechariah this vision, but the Lord's message in this vision. Your sins are removed. And you're going to have full peace. Peace with God, because in one day, all your iniquities are going to be removed. And so, regardless what chaos you face, you can have peace in your heart as well with your soul, knowing that you're, you have peace with God. But he finishes even with peace with others. There's hope of a promised peace, peace with God and peace with others. Look at the end of verse number 10. Or, I'm sorry, verse number 10. In that day saith the Lord of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree? In its most full sense, this is yet to be fully realized. But it will be fully realized. In that New Jerusalem, wherein dwells righteousness, where the lion and the lamb can lay down together, where every foe is vanquished, where, where there is peace, where there's no fear of being attacked, there's no fear of, of being vandalized. If you fear your neighbor, you stay within the walls in the safety of your house. If you fear your neighbor is going to hurt you, you don't go out in the yard, stand under a tree. It's ridiculous. You stay in a safe place. But here the Lord speaks of that day that you're going to fellowship with your neighbor under the fig tree, under the vine. There's going to be peace on earth. You know, God promised this peace. He promised to send this peace. It was echoed somewhere at the birth of Christ, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill to men. The ungodly cry for peace. But yet we're told that they, they cry peace when in fact there is no peace. But the Lord says, no, I am going to send real peace. And there's hope for that promised peace. And God is the only one that can give you this peace in your heart, even amid the chaos of life. Zechariah, he was a prophet of hope. And he's communicating to the people that the Lord still remembers them. Regardless of what's going on, even in, in the disarray of chaos, there's hope. We're a small little church. But we're, we're, we're very friendly with one another. And we share prayer requests, Please. rightly so. And we know many, uh, maybe not many, we know a lot, we know some, whatever. We know the struggles that one another are, are going through in different ways. We pray for people with bum legs, bum feet, people on their deathbed, you No know, mothers that are struggling, fathers that are struggling, job situations. And we, we enter into one another's burdens and all these things. And yet it's human nature, is it not? We don't really share our darkest hour with everybody. And so, there's things that are in my heart, there's things that are in your heart nobody else knows about. You have fears, you have worries, you have anxious thoughts that you don't share with other people. Things that trouble you. But there's hope in the midst of chaos. There's hope in the midst of the worst of circumstances. This morning, we are reminded that the Lord knows. The Lord knows all the discouragements that you face inside and outside, and the hope amid chaos. And that hope is only found in Christ. It's found in your sins forgiven, it's found in a purity of worship, it's found in a promised Redeemer, and it's found in that peace that is brought only by Christ. Only by knowing him. And may the Lord give us hope. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning we do thank you for your word. That you comfort us with what what you have communicated in scripture. We pray that we would each one lay these words to heart. And be greatly encouraged that the hope we have of eternal salvation. We thank you that we can say with the hymn writer as well with our souls. We pray that you'll bless the remainder of this Lord's Day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.